patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate all of your support throughout this year and for many years to come. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get your episodes every Monday. Today's guest is Anna Mathis. Anna grew up in the small town of Valley Springs, Arkansas, where there were more cows than people and never a shortage of life lessons to be learned. Anna is a student at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, double majoring in agricultural communications and agricultural leadership with long-term aspirations of being involved in the intersection of rural engagement and agricultural policy, while amplifying the stories of farmers and ranchers along the way. During her first year as a Razorback, Anna served as the state FFA president, where she set strategic vision for the state and was a voice for student success through agriculture and agricultural education. Anna is currently taking a leave of absence from U of A while she serves as the national FFA secretary. In this role, she informs, motivates, and inspires 760,000 plus FFA members, along with advisors, state staff, and teachers while forming relationships with corporate sponsors and state and national legislators. Anna, thank you so much for coming on to Friends and Fellow Citizens. Thank you so much, Sherman. I am honored to be here, and I can't wait for our conversation today. Wonderful. Well, I just want to know one quick thing. 760,000 plus FFA members, that's about the population of Seattle, just to give people some context. Uh, It's really, really remarkable just how many people involved. And I reached out to you because when I was interning on the Hill, I always saw the uh, amazing Blue Jackets, you know, all the FFA members who went to D.C. for, I believe it was a national conference or multiple conferences, and I thought, oh, why not reach out to Anna and to ask her on to our show today. Now, Anna, let's first dive in right into uh, your background. Uh, You are the National FFA Secretary. Uh, Tell us a bit about your background and how you got interested in agriculture. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, you mentioned having such a a broad and diverse uh, membership, 760,000 people. And it's really interesting to see where our members come from. So some of us are from really rural areas like myself and other people are from inner city Chicago or, uh, you know, just the typical city landscape that you would think about. Uh, But not me. I grew up in a very rural area, a town of about 150 people. So super small, not exaggerating exaggerating the more cattle than people statistic at all. Uh, But that's really where I got my start into agriculture. I wasn't fortunate enough to grow up on a farm, but my father's family had a dairy whenever I was growing up. And so I would go with my dad and we'd get to the dairy farm and I would help my grandma with the vegetable garden or I would bottle feed calves or I would just walk around the barn like I owned the place pretending I knew what I was doing (laughs) and uh, just drinking the chocolate milk just like a fanatic because it was just so, so amazing that fresh from the dairy. 
Uh, and so that was really kind of my early background, my early memories of agriculture. Uh, I grew up in middle school and high school, and my dad's actually an agriculture teacher and advisor. So that's how I got plugged into FFA. And there's a bigger story there, but uh, I didn't grow up on a farm uh, like many of our members actually don't, but we have that interest in agriculture due to FFA. And I think that's a really special thing. Wonderful. And I first, I'm from the complete opposite part of America. I'm from urban America here. I was from the San Francisco Bay Area where we have over 8 million people. Uh, it's just, uh, it's remarkable to connect with people from all across the United States because we really are a fabric of so many different lifestyles. And you mentioned chocolate milk. It's one of my favorite drinks too. And a stat that I always joke about, especially uh, from an urban person like myself, is that according to a survey from a U.S. Dairy Association, uh, they said they found that unfortunately, seven percent of Americans believe chocolate milk comes from brown cows, which is really really shocking to me. That's a lot of people. That's about fourteen million people, um, and I hope that kind of changes turns around and we get that down to close to zero as possible yes. um, but yes. I don't by the way just for everyone's information I am part of the 93 percent that does not believe that but anyway um, that's not it's not as big <laughs> well, of a thank goodness <laughs> um, now I want to go a bit deeper into kind of what you were saying a little bit about you know your interest in ag and um, tell us about how you got interested when you started school and when you uh, really got interested in the FFA? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned my dad, and that'll probably be a theme throughout the podcast, because along with that small community uh, comes tie, close ties with family. And so my dad is uh, the center of my world. And as such, I followed him around as a little girl all the time. Uh, especially because he was a teacher. And so I got to hang out with all the cool kids and the older kids. And uh, they were all FFA members because my dad was an agriculture teacher and by extension, FFA advisor, which those are really connected. And so I would see these older high schoolers who I thought were just the coolest people. And they had these blue jackets and they wore high heels. And I just really wanted to wear the high heels part. But I just idolized. I idolized these people growing up. And so whenever I had the opportunity to step into FFA as a freshman in high school, I jumped at the opportunity because the familiarity with my dad and also because I was a really, really competitive kid, like just in, insane, uh, really bad sportsman. I just wanted to win everything. It was, it was really toxic. And so I saw the FFA as an opportunity to win things. We have a lot of competitions, a lot of award ceremonies. And so that's really just a really a bad mindset walking into the organization. But it's true for me. And so I'm going to be honest about it. So I stepped into the FFA um, and I started competing. I started enrolling in different competitions and award opportunities. And there's one specific thing that we do in FFA. As soon as you step into the organization, we have a creed. Uh, it's a five it's a five paragraph creed talking about uh, just really everything about our organization. Each paragraph starts with "I believe." The first one starts with "I believe in the future of agriculture," and it's really just the the backbone of our entire organization. And in, in FFA, you can memorize the creed and then you can recite it as a competition, and that's what I did. 
and I won like every competition I could. I won the sub air competition and I won uh, the district competition. And so I went all the way to state and I was convinced that I was going to win. Uh, and a turn of events showed that I did not win and I got second place and my whole little freshman world just came crumbling down because that's what, that's why I had joined and I built this just really toxic mindset around winning. But let me tell you, Sherman, what happened after that and how I literally changed the trajectory of FFA and probably my entire career. Uh, so the, the writer of the creed, his name is E.M. Tiffany. He wrote the creed in the 1930s, and he wrote a quote that's not in the creed, but uh, this is what he had to say about it. He said, ever since thinking, hopeful men have inhabited the earth gibbering creeds. If any good has come from it, it's not in the, the gibbering or the creed, but in the nobility of mind that prompts men to ponder over their ideals. So essentially, E.M. Tiffany was saying that the good is not in being able to perfectly memorize a creed or, or the process of even winning. The good of what we do comes from the words inside the creed, comes from what we believe in, in our character, in, in our, our values. And so that just literally changed my entire mindset about FFA, about what I was doing in life and about, about what I could do in life. And so the reason I joined was to win, but the reason I stayed is because I, I believe in the organization so wholeheartedly. Well, it's such a wonderful sharing, Anna, because you touched upon you know, the core values and the philosophy behind this organization has been around for quite a long time. And you know, that quote that you shared, uh, that's that's quite amazing. Uh, this is this show is all about you know about the quotes, but also but really the meaning behind them and to reflect on the historical values that our institutions are built on. Um, I want to now transition a little bit into back, back to what you were saying about when you got interested in FFA, you want to compete. Uh, what what sort of maybe misconceptions that you have about FFA besides just an organization where you wanted to compete and you wanted to win? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's different for everybody and especially like regionally coming from small towns or coming from urban areas. Because my dad was an ag teacher and because I come from a really agriculturally rich area, I never believed that FFA was just for farm kids. Um, and I think that's a really harmful stereotype that we say um, both ways. So you'll find that a lot of people see FFA and see, say, Future Farmers of America. And that's actually not true. Um, in the 1980s, we changed our name from the Future Farmers of America to the National FFA Organization, all encompassing of every opportunity within our organization and not just production agriculture. But on the flip side of that, when we say, oh, we're not just farmers anymore, that really paints farmers and production agriculturalists in a negative light because we are. And so we really hold all of those ideas together in our organization. We are for production agriculturalists, but we are also for students interested in STEM or communications or just so many different areas. And so I never had that stereotype, but a lot of people do. And so we're really trying to work on making sure that FFA members know what we really are, but also the general public too. 
Absolutely. Well, this is a great transition to what the FFA is now. Um, could you give us an overview of the FFA's mission and kind of this, maybe some of the stats if you have them uh, in hand? And just um, to outline kind of where FFA is now and where it wants to go in the future. Ah, that's a great question. I would love to. So the National FFA organization is the largest student-led youth organization in the nation with over 760,113 uh, FFA members in all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Uh, we also just approved in the board of directors meeting a couple weeks ago the charter of the Virgin Islands. They've rechartered their FFA association, so they'll be back on board in no time at all. And so within our organization, what really sets us apart from other organizations is that we're actually intracurricular. So not only do we teach and have that like educational system in the classroom, FFA itself is also intracurricular. And to really sum it up, we believe in what we call a three component model. So imagine going back to like elementary school and seeing Venn diagrams, right, with the overlapping three circles. And so we have three circles that overlap and in the middle, that is a sweet spot for agricultural education. And we have three components that go into that. The first one being classroom instruction. So in order to be an FFA member, you have to be enrolled in an agriculture education class in middle school systems or in high school. This is where we teach about animal science and ag business business and systems and, and communications and plant science and mechanics and industry. And so all of these all of these components go into making sure that we know about agriculture and uh, whether that be on the local level or the national level. The next circle that goes into agriculture education is called SAE. FFA, we have what's called a supervised agricultural experience, which is enabling students to take ownership of what they learn. So they take these components that they learn in the classroom and then they make a project out of it and then they do it at home and really, really solidify those skills that they're learning in the classroom. So for example, my SAE or Supervised Agricultural Experience Project was construction and home improvement. So what I did out of school was I built decks and I did like concrete work and uh, renovated homes and campers and I made furniture for like local donations and donating it for not-for-profit industries and that's what I did to learn what to re-emphasize what I was learning in the classroom. And then the final circle out of our three-circle model is FFA. That's where we learn leadership skills and have opportunities to really to emphasize what we've learned and to have opportunities to be exposed to new things. And so in agriculture education, we see success through the th three-circle model and enabling our vision, which is transforming the next generation of leaders who will change the world through agriculture education. And the final tenet to who we are is our mission statement, which is equipping students and helping them develop their potential for premier leadership, personal growth, and career success through agricultural education and providing that positive difference in the lives of students. Excellent. Wow, that's amazing. That's probably the best introduction and overview of an organization I've heard in a very long time. It's so comprehensive. I love how you touched upon those three circles, if you like. 
I want to go deeper into a couple of these here. Uh, the first is about uh, the uh, leadership aspect. Um, Absolutely. I, I obviously truly admire you and your other FFA leaders for your leadership. And I mentioned earlier about you know m- myself seeing some of those FFA members on Capitol Hill, obviously before COVID, before the Capitol was uh, was open at the time, um, going in and meeting with lawmakers. So it was just a remarkable experience to see how many young people are engaged in this civic leadership and agricultural leadership. Can you just elaborate a bit more about uh, FFA leadership skills, but also how you develop leadership skills during your time in FFA up to this point? Yeah, I would be glad to. That's a great question. So in FFA, I was talking about those competitions. And one of the competitions that we have is called Leadership Development Events, LDEs. Uh, In these events, we have a myriad of different ways to expand your communication skills, which ultimately solidify your leadership skills. So whenever I was in high school, I competed in every single one of them that Arkansas offered, and that is prepared public speaking, where you write a speech and about a, a topic in agriculture, you deliver it and answer questions, extemporaneous speaking, where you only have a short time to write a speech on the spot, and then you deliver it and ask answer questions. The creed is an, an event in leadership development. Uh, parliamentary procedure, which is following Robert's rules of order, what many uh, you know, institutions and organizations use and a, a lot of Senate practices and principles are ingrained in Robert's Rules of Order. And it's really cool that these 15-year-olds are just running a meeting that is just right in line with that. And it's really inspiring to see a discussion meet is one where you you sit down with fellow leaders and you literally have discussions about agriculture issues and education. And so all of these events are kind of the backbone of our leadership. We teach students these skills and we allow them to compete and to be proud and to take ownership of that. And then these students take what they learn in those events and then they apply them to their real life. And so they apply them in their communities, um, inside the classroom and in other classroom settings. And just like what you're talking about, Sherman, going to the Hill. And so we have a lot of different programs that take FFA members to Washington, D.C., Some of those are full, like summer long conferences, what we call the Washington Leadership Conference, which is, again, taking what those students learn in the events and applying them to conferences and and letting them test out their skills and learn from each other and uh, find the morals and the character aspect of leadership. And then they take all of that. And then they show that and share that to their legislators. So whenever I was in 11th grade, I had the opportunity to go to D.C. and I met with our with our congressmen and our senators. And I got to share that as just an 11th grader in high school about why SFA is important to me. Whenever I was a state officer, uh, the transition period between high school and college, I was once again able to go to the Hill and we advocated for broadband access. We advocated for teacher recruitment and retention, all of those principles uh, to our legislators, which was just super cool. And so, again, our students nationwide have this opportunity to learn, to develop what they learn in conferences and competitions and just in life and then apply them on a larger scale, which is just really, really, really inspiring. Excellent. And I, I want to delve a little bit deeper into this leadership development, because obviously with leadership, there's successes and then there's other times when 
we realize that we need to do better. So uh, can you give us an example of how you encountered a situation where you had to be the leader and you encountered a particular difficulty or particular obstacle that you ultimately overcame with your leadership skills? Ooh, what a great question. So, yeah, I think there's been multiple instances where I were was faced with challenges or, or things to overcome and had to use leadership in that mindset. Uh, something recently is as a national officer, it's pretty challenging to represent an entire organization of differing beliefs. So I come from a very small and rural area, and that really differs from one of my teammates who comes from Southern California. And, uh, you know, values are different. Experiences are different. In FSA, we, we really believe that your experiences shape your beliefs, which shape your actions. And so because many people, everyone has differing experiences that leads to differing beliefs and differing actions. And so having to maybe represent an opinion that is not of my own, but still advocate for that and encourage that and be behind that has been really tricky for me. So in a a, a part of a role of the national officer is to serve on our board of directors. Our board of directors is comprised of a lot of different organizations. We have some teachers. We have a, a representative from the Department of Education, all wrapped up into our board of directors and then the six national officers. So on this board of directors, it is a governing body of an entire organization. And so I really had to use my leadership and discernment and standing up for what I believe in, but also being able to compromise and make sure that the best work and the best interests of our future organization is moving forward, whether or not I uh, you know, came up with that or that's my own opinion in that instance when we're voting on motions and such. Wonderful. Uh, I love how you described you know, the importance of you know, working with others. Or you, you acknowledge that people come from different backgrounds. I, I just personally feel like there's not enough of that in society where we need to recognize that we all come from different backgrounds and it's up to us to work together to work for something bigger and larger and more important than any one of us combined. Um, I just, I love what you said and your you're sharing about that. I want to now transition a little bit into more ag stuff, which clearly is much more down your alley than mine, as I indicated earlier. But I do think that this is a very important sector, especially when we think about just the vitality of our economy and way of life. And and I personally feel, as someone from the city, I really think that we need to uh, recognize the accomplishments of the agriculture sector, uh, get more youth involved in public service through agriculture education and development. Um, and I, I think it's going to be increasingly a, a bigger issue as we see, you know, various different opportunities and uh, threats emerge to uh, on the agricultural industry. Um, Anna, can you just walk us through some of the top issues that you think um, our nation should be looking at more or are currently facing as we kind of go through uh, the COVID pandemic, as well as some other changes in the world economy? Absolutely. I, I would love to. And I think, Sherman, you touched on something that is a key player in just about every single uh, ag issue facing the nation, and that's our experience. So people, be it farmers or producers across the nation or all the way up 
you know, up the chain to our policymakers, because people come from such extremely different areas in the nation, people have a lot of different opinions. And it's even in agriculture, we like to say in agriculture that we are really nonpartisan and that these issues are, you know, Democrat or Republican, these issues are facing our entire nation. And what we often run into in agriculture, specifically policy, is not necessarily partisanship, but region. So farmers in the western area of our nation or the eastern area, uh, if they're doing their like, beef production or, or row crops, they have different opinions on agriculture and policy than our folks in the south who are, who are doing rice or specialty crops. And so that's really interesting lens to keep in mind when looking at all of these issues facing the nation, because people have a lot of different opinions based on where they live. And that's that's fair and that's valid. So something that we're really, really pushing right now is just the public perception of agriculture. Like you mentioned, you're, you're from the city and thank goodness we're not going to have to have a chocolate milk intervention about <laughs> coming from a brown cow. But uh, that is something that we absolutely face. That's such a valid statistic. And it's it's emulate, emulated in a lot of other areas and sectors of our industry. And so making sure that just the general public and our consumers understand that farmers and ranchers are have been the first stewards of the land. Um, they make their, their business and their way of life on how they treat their land. And I think a lot of people forget that when they're trying to point fingers at greenhouse gas emissions or animal agriculture or pesticide applications. Our, our farmers and ranchers literally make their livelihood off taking care of their taking care of their land and their resources. And so just the public perception of agriculture is something that we're always going to need to make sure that we're doing a better job at. Uh, the COVID-19 effects and implications on our industry are just staggering. And I think we're still trying to catch up from 2020. So the trade war was kind of the beginning of January and February, which had a lot of implications on our on our beef cattle and, and different segments there. Then we had the meat packing and our packing plants being shut down, which just sent a ripple effect down our supply chain. And we're really passionate about our supply chain because we're not just production agriculturalists, those who are transporting the food back and forth and the products back and forth. They're just as viable agriculturalists as those you know, growing and feeding and grazing. Uh, and so even the finan- the financial implications too uh, for our farmers who were having to pour out their milk, uh, euthanize animals because of the just the supply chain and the supply and demand graphs were just reeling. And so we're still working through the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic um, along with policy. So I mentioned the trade war. That was a really, really big thing last year. Uh, the changing administrations, too, they have different values. They're looking at different things um, with the USDA changing a little bit. So that is something that we're working through as agriculturalists, not working through in the sense that it's been, you know, an issue, but it's just, you know, it's a different, different scope. Uh, and then the final two things I'd briefly mention, and we can go into whatever you would like. But the first one would be rural health care and broadband access. So, uh, you know, the infrastructure bill just passed or is working through actually passing. And so there is a broadband access there that was in the package. And there are a lot of different organizations and institutions 
with a seat at the table in broadband access. The National FFA organization made that one of our priorities this year. And so all those students that you're used to seeing on the Hill, that's what they were advocating for this year was broadband access, not just for rural areas, but also for urban areas too. And so we had probably 10 to 15 different conversations with folks in D.C. about broadband access. So we've talked about that a lot. um, And there are a lot of different thinking in that, but ultimately mapping, making sure that our maps are are up to date so we can continue mapping out, Uh, trying to figure out in broadband access, are we going to make sure that everyone has broadband access or are we going to try to make sure that the areas have fiber optic cables and that they're as fast as they can be? And who is going to regulate this? Who is going to kind of head this up? So those are all thinking pieces in terms of broadband access and rural healthcare. And then finally, I would say mental health and suicide prevention. Agriculture is a very complex industry, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. It's extremely complex. And there's a a really staggering statistic. Over 70% of our farmers and ranchers have know someone or have themselves contemplated suicide, and that is just, just not acceptable in terms of a lack of resources. And so the American Farm Bureau, the National Agricultural Law Center, they're all trying to push resources and opportunities for for help for our farmers and our ranchers who are just going through a lot in these past few years and uh, making sure that we are as healthy uh, in our in our mind and in our body as we can possibly be to be as successful as we can be. So that was so much. That was a lot. We can unpack anything that you want, but those are kind of the overarching things that we're looking at uh, in 2021. That's fantastic, Anna. You, you did an amazing job outlining those and just giving us a sense, especially someone like myself, as you were speaking about those issues, I really felt like you were able to speak in a way that I can understand. I can understand how complex you mentioned the complexity of agriculture, which I also think is is very much underappreciated. I was personally very surprised about that last point. I did not know about a stat like that about mental health and suicide. Why do you think that there isn't enough coverage about it? Because we often hear about mental health and everything, but it doesn't seem like it is reflected in the conversation in terms of, you know, from the ag side. Can you just elaborate a bit more about that point? I would love to. I think the biggest reason is our our audience. So our, our farmers and producers, depending on Sorry, I'm struggling. I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase this. But depending on where they come from and uh, their mindset, they are, there are a lot of proud folks in our industry. If you think about the demographic of our farmers and ranchers, the average age of a farmer is around like in in their 60s. And um, so there are a lot of these producers and ranchers who are very proud of, of, you know, their, their, ability to navigate the world. And so on average, we find that they're a lot less likely to ask for help, which is not pointing fingers. It's not anything but just pure facts. Um, And so it it is less likely that they'll reach out asking for these resources. And so I find that that's probably a big reason that it's not covered as much. But the truth is our, our farmers and ranchers are carrying an entire industry on their shoulders. And one that I just laid out has been in such flux since 
since the dawn of time, but specifically these past few months, or the past few years even. And so they're dealing with literally a lottery on their lives, right? Depending on rain, depending on um, Washington, D.C., depending on how much China is buying our products. Like that is that is what they're staking their life on. And those are factors outside of their control. And so that just amplified by the rising negative perception of agriculture by uh, just the paycheck that is always in flux. You know, farmers are often, they work a lot harder than they receive. And so it's it's so much toil on, on the mental state and that coupled with the lack of resources or resources that are there that they don't know of really amplifies the issue. And um, there are a lot of great organizations that are trying to spearhead this, but any exposure to this and anyone that you know, people outside of the industry that know about this, that can think of farmer, that can support farmers, uh, the more that we can do that, the absolute better while we're trying to find more productive ways to combat this. Absolutely. And I guarantee you that we'll be going back to these issues that you raised and some other ones. Uh, I really think this is, these are very, very vital issues that just cannot remain in one sector, I, I believe. I believe this is something that we need to be looking forward to in terms of on a federal level, state, or local level, which brings me to my next question, which is about a bit more about your experience in Washington, D.C., you know, the heart of our nation's capital and the beautiful Capitol building. I've been so pleased to have been there for a couple times, a couple stints in Washington. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I miss seeing uh, those FFA students and those jackets. Those are really, really amazing jackets. So customized and I'm guessing American made, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. Yes. That's, there you go. That's what I want to hear. Um, <laughs> let's go back to the time you went to Washington, 11th grade. Um, could, what can you tell us about a bit more about your experiences meeting with these lawmakers and policymakers in Washington and just being that advocate, that youth leader uh, for a sector that's so vital for our nation. Yeah, absolutely. So there have been three times that I've been to DC um, in the blue jacket. I went as a chapter officer, a state officer, and a national officer. So whenever I was a chapter officer, I went in conjunction with a Washington leadership conference, which is talking about diversity in our world and our agricultural systems and how we can work together to be more efficient. Um, and that, that's a summer long program that we have. And so students have the opportunity to go to the hill, uh, to kind of look around, to see, to see what's out there. And that was really cool. I stood on the steps of the Capitol building and I called the hogs. I'm from Arkansas. That's what we do. <laughs> it's in conjunction with our SEC school. So people have no idea what that means. But essentially, uh, we were talking about Arkansas things with our two senators and our four representatives. And so that was just a really cool experience. I was fangirling the whole time. And then I went back as a state officer and that's for our state officer summit, which you talked about being an advocate, Sherman, which is just hitting the nail right on the head. Our entire curriculum that the national officers facilitate state officer summit is about being an advocate and advocacy. And so we talk all about what it means to be an advocate, how we can be a good advocate. What is, what really is advocacy, whether that be 
talking to someone at a grocery store and making sure that mom of five realizes what food is and isn't safe uh, for her children because she's worried about that. And that's so valid. Uh, But that's a time for advocacy, uh, showing her that that non-GMO symbol doesn't necessarily mean it's more nutritious or even more safe. So that's an opportunity to be an advocate. And also on like a federal level, like you talked about, meeting with our congressmen and our senators, uh, that that's an opportunity to be an advocate too. So whenever I was a state officer, I got to meet, yeah, I got to meet all two, our, our two senators and our four representatives again, and got to advocate for things that were important to national FFA. And then I was just in DC a few weeks ago, actually, we finished facilitating the state officer summit. And then my team and I spent the next week um, on the Hill and meeting with other organizations, specifically about broadband access uh, and teacher recruitment and retention. So we talked to National Academy's Beef Association. We talked to uh, White House representatives, Will McEntee, and some other folks that were special advisors to the president. And we got to uh, speak about that. And then we went to the American Farm Bureau and just a lot of different associations. We talked to ACTE, Career and Technical Education, a lot of different organizations in DC about the importance of broadband access. And we are advocating for that. Excellent. Well, I really think that agriculture is not only important subject, but I do also do think it's one of the few really bipartisan committees. So if you think of the Senate yes. counterpart the and the House counterpart, it's one of those things where I, I really think we can we can come together on something like this because we we all know the vitality and the importance of our food chain. Um, not to mention, you know, some of those threats and those opportunities, which I actually would like to ask you about now. So if we kind of think globally a little bit and look at some of the opportunities and threats that we can we might be anticipating or that have already happened uh, for the American agriculture industry. You mentioned China a little bit. I think foreign competition is absolutely definitely on on top there. But what other global opportunities and threats do you see facing the American agricultural industry as we proceed through this decade on, and maybe for other for many more decades to come? Yeah, that's a great question. And you talked about the Senate Ag Committee, which reminded me that we were also at the Senate Ag Committee just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the ranking member is Senator Bozeman, who is from Arkansas and the past National Bay president a few years ago. She's on his staff uh, in that committee, too. So that was a really cool. We were able to go to the the room where it all happened, which is back to like a, you know, the Hamilton, the room where it happens. And so we're able to be there, which is really cool. Um, and talk about broadband access, but also some of these global opportunities and threats to the American ag industry. Uh, something on the forefront, I would say climate change and just a general depletion of our natural resources. And so um, the new administration, I think, is really passionate about climate change. We talked to Will McEntee in February, I believe, about uh, climate change and what was happening in Washington, D.C. around this idea and uh, just depletion of our natural resources, water being a very big one in the West and uh, best irrigation practices and such. So that's an opportunity and a threat to our industry. Next would be urbanization. I would say urbanization, the American Farmland Trust is a really cool organization to check out. 
and they really defend our farmland um, with, you know, growing population and growing urbanization. Uh, a statistic that we use in FFA and have for a long time is that we're expecting to feed 9 billion people by 2050, which is just insane compared to our, our global population right now. And so finding better ways to be more efficient with our farmland, to retain our farmland and to make sure it's viable for the future. Uh, and then the, I, I think the last thing I would say is just ag innovation. Uh, precision agriculture is really emerging and it has for a long time. And I think as a statistic I saw a couple days ago is that it's projected to reach around like $45 billion by 2025. And that's all about how we can be uh, better stewards of what we have to maximize our yields. Precision agriculture has all kinds of cool, just AI technology, drones, uh, controlling like moisture levels and irrigation through applications and such. And so uh, a lot of opportunities here, but there's also a lot of threats, uh, specifically in ag innovation and just the AI landscape. There's been a lot of hacking, you know, that has recently happened. And a few months ago, the like the largest producer and meat packer got hacked. And so we're really looking at like cybersecurity in terms of that ag innovation. So each of those things are great opportunities, but there's also some threats that come along with that. So mitigating those threats and working hard to see what we can do to ameliorate them are things that we're looking into. Exactly. You mentioned cyber. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, so we got Silicon Valley around here. Yeah. And uh, I, I really hope that they, they listen to what you're saying, what the agriculture sector is saying, because uh, it really is very, very comprehensive. And we often talk about connectivity and how much how connected we are to each other nowadays. Uh, I, I don't think we can ignore you know, cybersecurity issues that, and issues that you raised. And I want to now... Elaborate a bit more on the aspect of the urbanization, um, and really, but more more importantly, on the urban and rural divide, so to speak. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. we're talking about very different lifestyles. I hope that people have that choice as to uh, where they want to live in the United States. I think I certainly think our country is big enough to, for people to have a range of choices. But what do you kind of see as some stark urban rural divides that you think? Are not only just inherently because it's urban or rural, but also because it could be uh, potentially harmful to maybe public discourse or to understanding mm-hmm. of the complex issues that are facing us today. That is such a great question and something that I'm only going to be able to take a little stab at and something that needs to be really explored further, especially in, uh, in the FFA, the National FFA Organization. And I think it's because we appreciate diversity so much, uh, you know, whether we are from those inner city Chicago areas, we have FFA chapters in 24 of the 25 largest cities in the United States. Uh, but I, like, just like you said, you know, that's uh, in contrast to me and where I grew up, which is 150 people and, you know, knowing every single person that you graduate with and not having a stoplight in your hometown. <laughs> like this is it's such a big issue and something that we can say that we respect. But the truth is we don't really understand. And so I think one tenet to FFA uh, and to agriculture is the types of farming that we do. So we have um, in our inner city, you know, I talked about the SAE, right? The project, a lot of our students, 
do projects with animals. And so they have, you know, beef cattle SAEs, sheep production SAEs, where they they literally buy the livestock, they care for them, they sell them, they have the entire industry. But if you think about living in a high-rise apartment in a city, you know, you, you can't have the same access to that. And so like one tenant is just the differing agriculture types. So we have a, in the city, we have a lot of rooftop gardens and urban agriculture and finding abandoned warehouses and spaces and using creative agri-science and hydroponics to have the same ability and accessibility to agriculture, though it is different. So uh, one thing is access. Like access is a big difference between urban and rural students and different types of agriculture, like I mentioned and yeah, I think it, I think it's really harmful to uh, to say that one is better than the other, especially in FFA. Uh, we have you know we have a lot of students that grew up on a farm, and then these students that grow up in a city, they don't have the access and the ability to do that. So it's finding ways to to recognize that we are different, to appreciate each other's differences, realizing that a student that has ag photography or ag livestock or urban agriculture, all of those are the same. Uh, they're all amazing contributions. And then just finding ways to understand each other a little bit more. Uh, I, I talked about the experiences shape our beliefs, shape our actions. So when we see people's actions that uh, we don't believe in or that we, you know, we don't agree in talking about like the civil discourse and, and things that you're mentioning. We have to realize that it's probably a result of experiences. And so when we can find a shared experience together, then that's when we can go about having more civil discourse. We can understand each other a little bit better and to close that divide. And so um, one more final tenet to that is really just being proud of where you come from. We're seeing a, a huge shift to the city and that's been happening since the Industrial Revolution. That's been happening for a very long time. But making sure that our students understand that you can grow up, you can go to D.C. and you can achieve your dreams. But you know what? It's just as OK to stay home and to invest in your local systems, your local schools and your local community. That is amazing answer. And I have more faith in you and and the FFA on on bridging this this divide and uh, I really I just I really appreciate what what you just said that you said that you're going to take a little jab that's that was a, a quick and excellent jab at this issue um, <laughs> thank you so I really I really commend you for that and and one final question before we get into kind of this reflection phase of our interview episodes first is how and I really see FFA personally and and maybe for yourself and others might be this a similar view really see this as as an incredible american institution and a public service organization that really is an amazing pipeline for young people to get involved in today's issues. Um, so first question is, how do we get more young people to enter the public service field based on your experiences and what the FFA is? Um, but also, just a quick reflection on what the FFA means to you and your life as you progress through your career. Absolutely. And I, I really thank you for for seeing that and who we are and what we do. And you mentioned the word pipeline, and we're really proud of that, too. We really believe that we are uh, the talent pipeline for industry and for even just going back to our home communities. And 
making sure to equip our students with the skills and, and the experiences to be successful, which is going back to our mission and, um, you know, preparing our students and developing their potential for premier leadership, personal growth, and really hitting hard on the last one, career success. And so that's something that we find that industry is looking for and our parents are looking for too. Um, you know, when they're looking at their kids going into high school and they're worried about college and the rising yeah, admission fees and the rising competitiveness of getting into school, we really, really, really highlight the fact that we are the next talent pipeline and we're seeing a lot of students interested in that. Um, and that's how we get students to enter uh, FFA and that career and technical side of education. Because we also are seeing, and you've probably seen this too, that, you know, there's been a, a lar large, less of an emphasis on getting that four-year degree instead of just getting a technical certificate and going into industry and probably making even more money and, um, you know, not having the, the same amount of debt. And so we really highlight the importance of education and the importance of that four-year degree, but just as heavily, especially for students who college isn't for them, to go into welding or uh, go to electricity school or things like that. And so we highlight the duality there. And our, our parents are appreciative of that. Industry is appreciative of that. We continue to ask our friends in the industry what they're looking for. And we, we have as strong partnership as possible for our students to highlight their success as much as possible. Um, and then what does agriculture mean for me and what does FFA mean to me? Um, we have a saying in FFA, our, our motto is do, learning to do, doing to learn, earning to live, and living to serve. And all four of those really tie home to me. In FFA, we believe in the power of experiential learning. It's proven that we learn 70% of everything we learn through doing, like doing it and practicing it. And so I had the opportunity to practice what I loved and what I didn't love. Some of the competitions I were I was a part of in FFA industry aligned competitions, I was like, there's no way I'm doing this for the rest of my <laughs> life. And then there were other things that I was like, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. And so I was able to learn to do and do to learn and and practice agricultural communications before it even became a part of my life in college. Uh, earning to live, like you said, I mean, FFA is just an American institution where we are teaching character and values and ethics and hard work and everything we do, be it in the classroom, be it on a trip or a competition or going to Washington, D.C. Or, or raising your own livestock and then selling it and making a profit. Like those are so powerful skills to, to be given to our students. And then the final one is living to serve. And everything we do, whether it be opportunities for success or allowing our students the opportunity to leave their state where they may never have, they will might never have these opportunities ever, ever again. Um, or even classroom education. All of these things are amazing. But the undercurrent of who we are is living to serve. Just going back to that Ian Tiffany quote, like, it is, it is so great that we are doing all of these things, but why are we doing it? And that's living to serve. And so an undercurrent of who we are is community service and giving back and, um, you know, just 
is supporting our community and supporting each other. And there is nothing more powerful than that encouragement. That's something you'll see no matter where you go. I was in Texas a few weeks ago and people, every single person like shook my hand. I don't think I've ever got so many handshakes in my entire life. And they were like 13 (laughs) years old and they're just coming up to me and introducing themselves and looking me in the eye and shaking my hand. And then there were service projects right next to all that. And then I was in Indiana a month before that. And I saw these students winning on stage and their friends were sitting right next to me. And then they started just cheering and crying and laughing and yelling. And they were so excited because they didn't win, but their friends did. And so all of these things, yes, we teach, you know, success and career and technical success and career success. But man, I would argue that just as important are the character and the life values and lessons and and the family environment we create. So I'm so thankful for FFA. Um, I know that we are continuing to draw students in because of who we are, and that will never change, even nearly 100 years later. Well, that's amazing, Anna. And uh, amen to what you said about the, the character, about living to serve and having that purpose of doing what you do. Uh, I'm sure you had an amazing handshake workout, and I, yeah. I don't. It's pro- your handshake is probably a lot firmer than it was before. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, I really appreciate you you saying that, and you know, being uh, such a great spokesperson for for these values. And this, I think, is a really great tie-in with uh, our short little reflection phase in our interview, and. As you know, this show is based on the values of Washington's farewell address. Um, I mentioned patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, and civility. I think those are six pillars that I think our first president left for our nation and something that is very much everywhere within our our nature and our psyche. And I want to give you an opportunity to pick one or more of these pillars and uh, explain how you think they apply to our conversation today and about your experiences in FFA and in your personal life. Absolutely. So I would argue that just about all these tenants in, in Washington's farewell address is is emulated in the FFA. And I'm not going to spend time you know, going into all of them, but I'll briefly say why. Um, in FFA, we have um, opening ceremonies, which is just kind of a ceremony um, stating who we are, where we come from. We have officer positions in FFA. So like I'm the national FFA secretary and I'm stationed by an ear of corn, which just sounds really bizarre until you hear this ceremony and what it means. But corn stands for unity, uh, weirdly enough. And that's because in all 50 states, corn is grown. And so um, we just believe in that unity and in the blue jacket. People kind of make fun of that because it was made in the 1930s. <laughs> but uh, the blue jacket, we believe, is a great is, is a great equalizer. Everyone has an opportunity to have a blue jacket and no one is made better or made worse. We are all the same. Um, it's a family. And uh, that's why we wear the blue jackets and that's why we wear them to all of our official events. And so we really, really believe in that unity. A part of the opening ceremonies, uh, you know, like I said, I'm stationed by the corn. Uh, we have the plow, we have the rising sun. We also have George Washington. 
And that's who our treasurer is stationed by, uh, because we believe that George Washington was a great proponent of uh, you know, fiscal responsibility. And so we talk about that in our opening ceremonies. Um, education, obviously, we really believe in that as an intracurricular organization. We believe in patriotism and healthy nationalism. Um, in our opening ceremonies, we always say the Pledge of Allegiance. The reporter is stationed by the flag, the American flag. Uh, civility, I was talking about character and manners, uh, yes ma'am, no ma'am, uh, but also making sure that we're being inclusive as well. Um, and so we really believe in all of these. I personally am a person of faith and that really drives who I am. That drives my purpose in running for National FFA office. Um, and yeah, I would just I would just argue that we are made better because of all these tenants. And I'm, I love Washington's farewell address too. And I think it's a really great concept to make sure that we're still living out these principles as much as possible. Absolutely. And this is why I, I really think that, you know, an organization like the FFA really embodies these values and uh, it's a very special American institution in my view. And I, and I hope that a lot of people think that way too. Now, Anna, as we kind of wrap up our episode today, I'd like to just give you an opportunity to share uh, how can people find out more about what you're doing, what the FFA is doing now and in the future? Absolutely. So uh, just a great way to get plugged in initially is www.ffa.org. That lines out more of our mission statement, who we are, what we're up to. We have a lot of different programs and opportunities in FFA, and that's a great way to get plugged in. We also have the National FFA Alumni and Supporters. I'm a big believer in the fact that just because you're not born into something doesn't mean you can't be a part of something. And so if you're interested in giving back, um, we have our separate 501c3 National FFA Foundation, and they do a great job in supporting our students in the future of our world through agricultural education. And so you can find some more ways to get plugged in on there, uh, Facebook, social media, and finding ways to invest in your local chapters. While we are a national organization, the strength of who we are undoubtedly comes from our grassroots and our chapters. So wherever you are, I'm sure you can find an FFA chapter and find ways to support them too. Thank you so much. You know, you have really done an amazing job outlining what the FFA represents, your story and how you got into the organization, obviously the top agriculture issues that you have found and some of the things that you're working on, and whether it's expanding rural and broadband access or telling people that chocolate milk does not come from brown cows because we also don't want to disappoint <laughs> brown cows either yeah. uh, as part of our inclusive society. <laughs> um, I, I, truly, I, I truly have a lot of faith in yourself and the leadership in which you have shown. And it really is a, a testament, I think, to uh, the potential of American youth and for them to... Uh, do their part in in serving for the FFA, for the agriculture sector, but also for the nation as a whole. And uh, I just I cannot be more grateful enough to you and for your amazing amazing words of wisdom. I, I really appreciate you coming onto the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Sherman. Thank you for the invite and for me being able to talk about what I'm passionate about, but only as a result of people who have poured into me. 
I find paying it forward is really important because I promise I did not come up with these thoughts by myself. And so having that spirit of community is really important to me, being able to pay what people have invested into me. So thank you for that opportunity. And folks, that'll wrap up our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Again, if you haven't already, please make sure you hit that subscribe button. I really appreciate all of your support. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. And I'll see you next time.